Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. All right, what's up, everybody? This is SGX coach Mike Diebler, and welcome to episode 61 of the OCR Underground Show, where my job is simple. I want to give you better tips and strategies for smarter OCR training, making sure your next race is your best race. And in fact, if you haven't checked out my free Jumpstart training program, you can see exactly what uh, how I would start with a training plan. You can just head over to OCRunderground.com slash free dash training and pick up your free copy there. And while you're at the website, make sure you check out the show notes found at ocrunderground.com slash episode-61. In there, I'm going to put in any links or resources based on uh, the info in this episode. So I wanted to start with kind of a mini recap. I actually just got back from Big Bear. Did the uh, I, I did the Spartan Sprint, so I'm going to primarily talk about that. My wife did the Beast. The funny thing was uh, the past two years, I did the Beast and Sprint up there and I thought it was time for my wife to give it a try and she fought me for a while and I just finally said you you should definitely do this you'll do well and signed her up and then as we got closer checking out the weather was all over the place and wasn't looking great and so be it. it turned out that the beast was actually pretty much a perfect day it was sunny a little cooler but really nice temperatures you know still a a tough course from what it sounded like and uh, you know anything up on that mountain is going to be hard but she um, she did great. I'm really glad and proud of her for doing it. Uh, and then I kind of ate my words, though, when the next day came around for the sprint. And uh, they actually had to cancel the beast, if you haven't heard, on Sunday because of the weather. And it was just uh, snowing, which in Southern California, even in the mountains this time of year, is a little bit odd. And uh, they had to cancel the beast because of the snow and they couldn't get to the top of the mountain safely and have racers up there, which is definitely the, the right decision for them to do. And even for the sprint course, they ended up having to modify it. So they uh, were they had to stick closer to the, the base of the mountain um, for the reasons I just mentioned. And they created a shorter, uh, I believe it was about a mile and a half or so loop. Um, and you just did it twice. So it was really interesting. Um, I know some people weren't happy with everything that happened, but again, you know, Mother Nature does what Mother Nature does. And uh, I think Spartan did a great job just trying to still get some racers out there. They still did the trail race. They just had to cancel the, uh, the beast for that day. And, you know, they modified it. So uh, it wasn't the course that everyone was expecting, but I still, I, I actually kind of liked it. Um, I'll admit I wasn't excited to do the dunk wall twice. I was actually pretty surprised to even see the dunk wall still in there with such cold, uh, snowy, rainy temperatures, um, you know, let alone do it once. But to have to do it twice was a little bit of a shock. And uh, But it was a great course. So for the sprint, you um, had a little bit of an incline, you know, considering we were up at Big Bear and I think everybody was ready for a, a a climb up to the top of the mountain, you know, so it was a little bit of incline, but really nothing too bad. And uh, we started with that climb at the top, got over a few walls, came back down right to the tire flip, what, um, which always is a challenge when we have muddy and rainy conditions. If it, Sometimes it just sticks to the floor. Your feet can't get much traction, so that proved to be a little bit of a challenge uh, going through there. Uh, from that, we climbed up to the helix, 
which um, you know I've talked about that on previous podcasts. Uh, not too challenging, but in conditions like this, it's just one of those things. Be careful, or uh, you might slip off and, and fall if you're not paying attention where your feet are going. Um, then down to the spear throw, and I'll have to admit I missed it my first time around, which I just really wasn't expecting because I don't typically miss the spear throw, but. Uh, I didn't really think about it, but when you pull that spear back, it was basically just going sliding right through a pile of mud and I picked it up and it was just completely covered in mud. Didn't really think it was a big deal. Went to throw it. It completely slipped out of my hand and uh, fell short of the target. So had to, to go through some burpees for that, which was, you know, never a pleasant thing. Uh, on from there to the rope climb, which I know I saw some people doing burpees there a little bit more than normal because of the wet conditions. Uh, to the A-frame, and then over to the plate drag, which was pretty interesting. Uh, it was actually downhill, which looked awesome. You actually didn't have to pull too hard. The hard part was I felt like none of the sleds were lined up because it was so muddy. They were just sliding all over the place. So while it wasn't the biggest challenge to pull the sled, pulling it back up the hill was a little bit of a challenge, mainly because you had no traction and it was just a big mudslide. Trying to pull that thing up became a pretty big challenge. Uh, to there went the uh, bucket carry, which uh, was probably one of the more normal um, obstacles for, for this venue, uh, just up a big circle back down. And from there, trying to remember correctly all of the, the different options, we ran over to the pipe layer, which this was my first experience with that obstacle. And if you haven't seen it, it's kind of like a big tunnel of pipes that you just crawl to and just can't touch the ground. Uh, not too challenging, really more of like a mild inconvenience to slow you down uh, and have to fit through. Uh, do need a little bit of mobility to be able to go up and over some of those pipes and bars. Um, pretty straightforward though. And then uh, from there, we went down to the first time through the dunk wall and rolling, rolling mud, uh, where we, on the first lap, you would make a left after you got up the slip wall, up and over, you went to the hoist, which again, a little bit wet, making it a little bit heavier, but not, not too, too bad. And then we would end up right back at the start, go through round two uh, for the same exact course, and then finish up when you got to that slip wall again after the, the dunk wall, uh, we would loop around and actually finish up with the multi-rig, which, you know, challenging anytime it's um, wet, and right to a, a barbed wire crawl, which was interesting. I can't remember any race where the last obstacle was a barbed wire crawl. Uh, it was downhill, which was nice, uh, but I'm still feeling some of those rocks on my elbows and knees. It was pretty rocky going through there. Um, but not not too bad. So uh, it was kind of a fun course. It, not many times do you get a second chance at an obstacle. So if you didn't make it the first time around, you have that opportunity to hopefully learn from it. So in uh, my case, I definitely learned from it. Did a, a wipe down that spear to get it a little bit more dry and then had a much more successful throw the second time around uh, and then get through the rest of the obstacles. So um, I, I thought it was fun. It was just a different experience. I thought Spartan did a great job just uh, modifying on the fly uh, with the weather conditions uh, to still get as many people out there uh, as, as were willing to participate. And, and go through a, a pretty crazy course, but uh, it was fun. We actually stayed up there the next day uh, and um, Monday morning to wake up to at least five or six inches of snow on the ground, which was just unbelievable. Not something I was expecting to see. Even with the snow the day before, nothing that really was sticking too much, maybe a light covering 
uh, of the ground, uh, but the next day was pretty significant snow. So that was definitely a, an experience up at Big Bear for this weekend, but definitely a lot to learn from it. Um, and that's really something I try and do with every race is really uh, take something away that I can learn from, get better with the next time. Uh, so uh, in this episode, I actually want to talk about in the Inside Mike's Mind segment of really of really some key things that I learned from this race and talk about how to prep for the unknown and really when you face some of these challenges like we saw in Big Bear when you're going to be doing something that you really weren't planning on and, and really how to get ready for something like that. Uh, in our research review, I want to talk about uh, different ways to prescribe exercise and uh, looking at a study that compared um really improvements in VO2 max with uh, responders, people who respond well to training with non-responders, those that don't typically respond well to certain types of training. And they specifically compared it to kind of standard exercise prescription using percentage of heart rate reserve or heart rate and uh, compared that to more of an individual approach using ventilatory threshold. Uh, so we'll go into exactly what all that means and what they found in that study. And then finally, in our coach's corner, I have on uh, an amazing guest, uh, he is the, uh, or his name is Alex Hutchinson. He's the author of the book Endure. And I've talked about this book on a previous podcast. It's a book that I rec highly recommend to most uh, athletes uh, and really all of my, my coaching clients to read this book. Alex does an amazing job really looking at the different theories, the research out there on what actually limits performance, whether it's a, a physiological reason or a, maybe even a psychological reason and all the different things that can contribute to really uh, stopping us from reaching our fullest potential. So I was really excited to get Alex on here. I know you guys are going to really enjoy this interview and, and take a lot from it, uh, but let's get into this episode. All right, before we get into this episode, I wanted to take a minute to mention some of the sponsors of the podcast, starting with Umpqua Community College. Are you a graduating high school athlete and training in OCR? Are you ready for something epic? How about starting your college career on the first and only collegiate obstacle course racing team in the nation? If you've been racing OCR, you need to check out Umpqua Community College in Southern Oregon. Athletes get in-state tuition and there is scholarship money available. They compete in different races like Spartan, Terrain, Warrior Dash, and much more and have had tremendous success in their uh, time that they've been around. Uh, if you want to learn more, definitely check out Umpqua Community College or you can go to uccriverhawks.com and check out the obstacle course racing team. This episode is also brought to you by Mobilitas. Now, if you're training hard, you need to be recovering hard as well. Mobilitas has some great products to help in that process, from self-myofascial tools like foam rollers and spheres and peanuts to actually a new product that they just came out with, a, a hemp and turmeric heated muscle gel. If you just ran Big Bear, you're probably feeling those legs a little bit from climbing all those hills. Uh, you definitely want to aid in that recovery as fast as possible. And their new muscle gel is perfect for uh, sore muscles, post-workout recovery, deep tissue massage. Uh, so check it out at mobilitas.store. And don't forget, you can use code OCRU10 to save 10%. All right, for the Inside Mike's Mind segment, uh, this is actually probably more of a, a personal prep, pep talk <laughs> to myself. But as I mentioned, after every race, I like to think about what I took away, what I can take away, how I can improve. And I think definitely a lot of things came up with Big Bear. And 
I think most of you probably saw, or if you didn't run the race, you know, the weather was a, a big issue specifically on Sunday where, you know, they had to cancel the beast and they had to change the sprint and really nobody was ready for exactly what they were going to throw at us. And I've, I, a couple of topics I've talked about in the past is, you know, not stressing about what you can't control. Uh, this is a big thing. Just, you're going to have to deal with whatever and everyone's going to be in the same boat and sometimes we can get inside our own heads and really psych ourselves out and i i kind of saw a little bit of this with myself personally and definitely uh, affected my performance a little bit um and then the other thing is just you know having that plan b and having that option of hey things aren't going to go the way you want them to go all the time and how can you deal with that and you know we've talked in the past about just different techniques for getting through different obstacles you might have to change some things up based on weather based on cold based on mud or whatever rain and then snow apparently so uh, i i just think this is something that i i directly saw you know for example my strategy going into this race was to, you know, I was planning on the hills and I saw when I saw the course map, it was, I'm going to just march up that hill as fast as I can. And then I'm going to take off and sprint and just try and pass as many people as I can going downhill, because that's one of my strengths is to really pick up the pace and, uh, you know, move my feet quick so I can get downhill pretty fast. Now, when they changed the course up, there wasn't much of that in you know, incline and, and descent down the mountain. And even where there was, it was just muddy. And honestly, I didn't feel comfortable just taking off going down some of those steep um, descents down the mountain. So I had to totally, you know, it really changed how I was going to approach this race. And it definitely affected, you know, really just my attitude where I started thinking, well, there goes my strength. You know, now I'm not going to be able to do what I wanted to do, carry out the plan that I wanted to. So definitely just, you know, one thing that definitely hit me and, and definitely affected my performance, uh, going through some of the obstacles, one in particular. So I, I did miss the spear throw and it was something that I, you know, I really shouldn't have missed it at all. And first off, I just didn't take my time. I didn't, uh, you know, I had to wait and I, for some reason, whenever I have to wait for the spear throw, it, it psychologically messes me up and I think I just start to rush it but because it was muddy when I dragged that spear back the whole uh, spear was just covered in mud and I didn't really think much of it and I I don't really think I've had a, a spear throw that muddy before so when I grabbed it every, I set up like I normally do and when I went to throw it I tried to throw it hard because of you know I just want to get through the wind and make sure it it stuck in there and when I threw it, my hand went, but the spear didn't really go because it just slid right through my hands and it just ended up being a bad throw. And then I had to do my burpees and then again, just got into my head that, well, now I'm doing burpees, so I'm going to be so far behind. And they were extra tiring, I think, just because I was, you know, had that negative self-talk in there and it just really affected the rest of my race. And it wasn't until I got to that redemption throw and I got to hit it the second time by taking my time trying to dry off the, the stick as best as I could and then hitting that spear. And then it was like all is good again and I can run, run fast. And where I was walking on the first lap, I was sprinting now. And it just goes to show how much that mindset is going to influence our performance. And as we get into our interview with um, Alex Hutchinson, we're going to talk a lot about this. And I, I just can't stress this enough that we have to prepare ourselves for the unexpected. And clearly that is difficult because you don't know what to expect. But I think it's important that as we're training, kind of the one big takeaway is 
know that things aren't going to be perfect. The, the, the situation, the, the environment, everything's not going to be exactly how you want it to be. So in your training uh, situation, when you set up your, your workouts, try and copy that a little bit. Now, I'm not saying doing anything crazy that's going to hurt yourself, but if it is raining or you know a little muddy on the trail, maybe you don't do this every time because sure things can happen you can slip and you know twist an ankle or fall or whatever but every once in a while get out in conditions like that where we're going to struggle we're going to have to find different ways to get through whatever we need to get through and i I just think that's important and you know one thing i i am probably going to start to do now is when i practice my spear throw put some mud put some dirt put something on there to make it a little bit more slick so i have to really think and concentrate how am i going to approach this if i'm in that situation in the race uh same thing you know monkey bars and hanging obstacles i know a lot of people were falling on the rig uh because of this because it was so slippery and i definitely had to change my approach up on this and really make sure that i was holding those handles tight so there's no way that that it would fall and and slip through so i've seen some people reaching their whole arms through and you know hanging by their elbow you know you, you do what you can to to get through that obstacle and avoid those burpees or whatever it might be so um that's really the, the big thing I wanted to mention is really how can you adjust your training so it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward, and just not the way you you wanted it to go. So I, I think this is not only a great physical form of training, but definitely mental just to prepare you for really what's going to be unexpected and when you might not be ready for. All right, well, it's time for our research review, and I have a great study that I wanted to break down from Medicine and Science and Sport and Exercise, and this is a recent study that was pretty unique uh, where they were looking at improving VO2 max, and they did this through different training methods, and what they, a couple things that they were looking at were this idea between responders and non-responders, and this is a really interesting concept, and it kind of, it comes down to a few things, but, you know, genetics could play a role with it, but when, when we look at studies, usually we see kind of the average results. So they did something to a group of individuals and they got better, they got worse, they didn't change. But when you look at the actual individual participants, what you'll see is some got like really better, some got worse, some didn't change, but they're just looking at, all right, well, on average, we took this population, did did they see a, an improvement as a, as a group or, or not? Um, but it's kind of interesting when they do a study, how can some people get dramatically better with the same intervention or supplement or dietary change, whatever it was, and others not? And this is not an easy thing to explain. Like I mentioned, genetics could play a role, how compliant they were with the program or whatever it might be. Um, But it is kind of interesting to see that there is this phenomenon where some people just don't respond as well to others with with certain training methods. So they wanted to look at that um, and compare that with two different training methods. Now, they did the same workouts. So they had 12 weeks of um, endurance training and three days a week. And what they did was they prescribed exercise intensities and they had two groups. One was using a age predicted formula for their heart rate intensities. So they would use a formula and say, okay, based on your age and your resting heart rate, they want you to train at this 70% would equal this many beats per minute for you. This is how hard we want you to train. 
Uh, for the other group, they used ventilatory thresholds. So they did use some sophisticated testing techniques so they can measure gas exchange. But this is essentially looking at the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen. And really, you can see ventilatory threshold by how your breathing changes the harder you push. So we have a ventilatory threshold one, what they call when you first start becoming out of breath. So it's usually at a, a low to moderate intensity. And then a ventilatory threshold two, which is now where you're significantly out of breath and you uh, cannot, cannot speak very well and have a hard time saying a few words or holding a conversation. So that's kind of a, uh, the layman's way of uh, performing that test and figuring out your heart rate. They use much more sophisticated tools, but we'll, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But so the, what it came down to was the ventilatory threshold numbers that they used were going to be much more customized. They're going to be much more specific than using an age predicted formula. So after 12 weeks of training, what they found was, well, both improved VO2 max, which is great. So whether we're using an age predicted formula or we use more of a custom approach using something like ventilatory threshold, um, we see improvements in VO2 max, which is great. Now, it wasn't significant, but there was a more dramatic improvement in the um, ventilatory threshold. So using a more custard, uh, custom versus standard approach. So they, uh, the, uh, the standard approach using the formula saw about a 7% increase. And the custom approach using ventilatory threshold saw a 11% increase. So uh, according to their statistics, not significant difference, but they still noted that there was a difference and uh, they saw an improvement there. But I think the interesting thing about this study was the, the idea that they looked at the responders versus the non-responders. So for example, in the group that used the heart rate numbers based off of their heart rate reserve or the, the age predicted formula, they had um, 20 people who participated in that group and eight of them actually didn't respond. So they set kind of a, a minimum that they needed to see a change in VO2 max and eight of that, that group did not see a change. The other 12 saw significant improvements in VO2 max. So basically saying not everybody responded in that group. The interesting thing was in the other group, there was 19 individuals that used the more customized approach and all of them saw improvements in VO2 max, some more than others, but they all saw significant improvements there. So I think there's a couple great takeaways that we can get from, from this study. It's one, knowing that all of us are different. We're all gonna respond to different training programs. So as we go through, it's important to monitor and see that you are seeing some improvements and getting better because if you're not, maybe the program you're particularly following isn't the best one for you. So I just think that's important to remember that even though we, we see others uh, really benefiting from a workout, I'm, I'm not saying we can't try it, but just know we might not meet, see the same exact results there. Um, the good thing is with, uh, for many though, either formula is, or either option is going to work. So it's probably very difficult to use ventilator threshold to test your, your numbers and see what heart rate you should be at. Uh, it's much easier to use age predicted. So I think that's probably the way to go. But what I think is important to pay attention to is see how those numbers tend to work for you. So as you're at certain intensities, so if I'm at 70% of my uh, heart rate reserve, this should be a fairly moderate to easy intensity. And if I am really huffing and puffing and struggling, it's showing me that I'm actually probably at the wrong intensity and these numbers might be off for me. Um, 
or vice versa, where it, it feels like I'm doing absolutely nothing. So maybe that is too easy of an intensity. So um, we just don't want to live and die by those those uh, formulas and make sure they're a great starting point. They're going to get us within the ballpark, but we probably want to pay attention to uh, how we feel, perceived exertion, things like that, to make sure that we are seeing in improvements there. And and one thing that we don't often consider is you should be improving. So your heart rate intensities are probably going to change after a while. So this is why, it, again, why it's important to use that perceived exertion, not just your heart rate as the only indicator for, for how you're improving there. So again, just thought this was a great, interesting study looking at a, a couple different things. So hopefully that helps you uh, plan your endurance training, your running, and giving you a better indicator of, of is your heart rate accurate? Can you, can you push harder? Are you pushing too hard? Whatever it might be. All right, well, it is time for our Coach's Corner, and I am incredibly excited to have our guest on today, Alex Hutchinson. Alex is an award-winning journalist and author. He writes for Outside Magazine. He was a contributor to Runner's World and a lot of other publications. He was himself a middle and long-distance runner for the Canadian national team. And I believe he's the first physicist that we've had on the show, getting his PhD from the University of Cambridge, but that is actually not why we have him on the show today. Instead, I wanted to talk to him about his latest book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. All right, Alex, how you doing today? Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show, Mike. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so I read your book, uh, your latest book, uh, I believe it was a little over a year ago, and I've been wanting to get you on the podcast because I just have so many questions, and I think this is a topic that uh, so many people don't really think about of really limitation and not just the physiology. I know one thing I'm probably guilty of it because I do have a background in exercise physiology where I sometimes look too much at the body and not bring the mind into it. So I'm, I'm just really excited to really get both sides of this going to not, you know, always selfishly to help myself, but to help the listeners and the clients that I work with. So, uh, really excited about this. Let's, um, Let's just start with kind of what sparked your interest for this whole topic on really limitations in human performance. Yeah, it's. I, I guess it. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. At the at the at the deepest level, it comes from my own experiences as a runner, um, both in the general sense. So I was a competitive distance runner. I, I, I ran in high school and college, and after college, ran for the Canadian national team. So you know, every time you you, you do a race, you're grappling with. Uh, physical limits. Right. And mm -hmm. so, and so you're trying to figure out what defines these limits and, and how can I change them? How can I go a little bit faster or get a little bit stronger or whatever? So I think, um, that in general, that's this, that's the area my, where my interest comes from. There's this, there's actually a specific race that, that when I, when I sat down and thought about this, cause I spent about, I don't know, nine or 10 years working on this book, you know, directly and indirectly, uh, talking to scientists and researching it. And, and at a certain point after I'd been doing it for a lot of years, I was kind of you know, think to myself, why is this such an obsession for me? Like, why am I spending so, so many years trying to, trying to understand this? And I was thinking about it and I think I, I, I traced my interest back to a race I ran in, in, uh, in college where I was trying to break four minutes for 1500 meters. And when, and I should, I guess I should give some background. 1500 meters is a little bit shorter than a mile. So it's like a, a poor man's version of the four minute mile. It's 17 <laughs> seconds shorter than a mile. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I'd been, I ran 402 in high school in my second year of running, and I, I thought breaking four minutes would be easy. 
but I got stuck at a plateau for about four years. I was running 401 and 402 uh, every, every year for four years. And so at that point, I really had a sense that I was bumping up against physical limitations, that this was what my body was capable of. And it was the outer limits of my, what my muscles and heart and lungs could do. And I had this, uh, you know, I won't, I won't draw out the story, but I had this strange breakthrough where I, I went out and ran a, a, a race and started out really fast, you know, and the, the timekeeper was calling out splits that were just I couldn't believe how fast I was going in the first few laps. And after, you know, by the, about halfway through the race, I was like, man, I don't know what's happening. This is the greatest day of my life. Just don't, don't mess with it. Don't, don't stop thinking about it and just run. And I ended up running 352, which was a, a nine second personal best. And nice. the long story short of it is a friend of mine had, a teammate of mine had taken my splits so that I could put them in my log. And it turned out the timekeeper had been giving me the wrong splits. He'd missed the start and was giving me splits that were off by three, three or four seconds. <laughs> and so he'd kind of tricked me into thinking I was having this amazing day. And as a result, I had. And so, yeah. and, and then once the switch was flipped, it never flipped back. I, you know, I, I, I never had trouble breaking four minutes again. So um, I think that really altered my, my I could, after that, I could never walk away from a race with the feeling that's like, well, that's what my body was capable of. I, you know, my VO2 max prevented me from running any faster than that. It, there was always this question of, is there more in the tank? And if so, how do you access that? And I think that in a winding, circuitous way is what led to the book. Yeah. And, I, you know, I can uh, relate very similarly. I was... Uh, you know, I've gotten into obstacle course racing and, and listeners of the show have heard some of this before, but I was more of a power athlete, you know, growing up, I was a basketball player and a high jumper. And I did that competitively in, in college. And when I was in high school, my best high jump was uh, six feet, 11 inches. And I apologize. I don't remember what that is in meters anymore. <laughs> it's high. That's I, I can figure that out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I figured, okay, I'm an inch away from seven feet and seven feet is kind of that uh, you know, it's like the four minute mile, you know, where it's, it's just that, that number where, okay, I'm right there. One more inch, no big deal. Um, I didn't break the seven foot barrier until I was a senior in college. And, but when I did it, I did it once and then I did it the next meet and then I jumped seven, one, and then I ended up finishing my, my highest jump ended up being, I do remember the meters, uh, 2.18, which, wow, uh, that's, that's legit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So about seven, seven feet, two inches. And it just, you know, you get to that point where it's like, I just can't jump any higher. Like, I don't know if I can lift weights anymore, like get stronger and my technique and all these things. And then you do it once and all of a sudden it's okay. And, and I think, you know, that's a lot of what your book brings out is that sure. Like if I kept going, can I hit nine feet? I mean, I, I don't know, but probably not right. There's the world records eight feet. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's obviously a limitation, but it's kind of cool to see. And what you, a lot of your research is showing that we're probably not hitting our own personal limitations quite yet, even though it, it often feels like that. Yeah. So first of all, it's, it's great to hear that story, which like, like you said, is absolutely parallel to my own story and to hear it for something like high jump. Cause there's uh, often people sort of ask, well, is this just for things like, you know, endurance events? And, and I, and I don't think it is. I think it, it's, it's much more broadly applicable. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's absolutely a parallel, uh, you know, sequence of events in a, in a explosive power thing, which you, you might think is much less about the mind. Um, yeah. so, so yeah, I, I, yeah. And, and, and one, you know, that brings up, you, you know, you're saying, are you going to jump nine feet? And one thing where people often, I think, get maybe not confused, but kind of miss the emphasis saying that your brain 
plays a role in setting or your mind plays a role in setting your limits. doesn't mean that the limits are only in your mind. It yeah. doesn't, doesn't <laughs> mean that I can, I can just decide that I'm going to be, you know, six foot eight and play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, we're absolutely constrained by our physical, uh, you know, attributes and our training and things that, and, 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 you know, uh, an out of shape Usain Bolt is always going to out sprint me, no matter how well trained I am. He, he mm-hmm. his physical attributes for sprinting are, are much better than mine, but the, the, the extent to which each individual, one of us gets near to whatever our individual physical limits are is determined by the mind and the brain. And that's, and that's actually a much more uh, relevant struggle for most of us. Cause you know, really at the end, most of us are pushing against our own limits. And so that that's where the mind becomes much more important than trying to compare myself to, to Usain Bolt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's the most practical thing is that, you know, it's cool talking about, you know, the, the limits of human performance. And in, in your book, you have loads of examples of people who just push themselves to just mind boggling feats. Um, but really, when we break it down, we all are battling this. And it's something that every single one of us can benefit from when we understand that, yes, there's our physical limits, but are we even uh, approaching those yet? Or are we still stuck in the mental limitations or, or the brain just uh, influencing our ultimate output and performance? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's a, and that's a, like you said, it's a much more relevant personal battle to most of us. And I think uh, certainly I love watching, uh, you know, the Elliot Kipchoge's of the world trying to run a two hour marathon. Um, that's, you know, it's fascinating. I, I, I really love that, but I also, uh, you know, find great meaning in my own, uh, you know, battles against much, much more humble barriers. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's what keeps me interested in, 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 uh, you know, in sport in general. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, I'd love to kind of dive into some of the topics you talk about in the book, just to give our, our listeners kind of an overview of, you know, just how this all is relevant and, and, uh, just the different concepts that you talk about. Um, you, you talk about, you know, just some different, um, theories out there in, how how the body is limited, um, and I just I, it seems like just about everything in life goes there. There's there's probably not a right answer, but there's different possible uh, reasons for things that uh, potentially can limit our performance. Could you just kind of touch on just some of the different thoughts out there and, and theories and uh, things that you discover that ultimately may be limiting performance? Yeah, sure. I mean, and you know, first of all. There is obvious, there are lots of physical things that limit limit us, and in the in the middle section of the book, I try to go through uh, some of the key factors physiologically that that hold us back and explore to what extent they're true limits and to what extent they're 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 just kind of uh, the way I think of it is are are they like red lights where let's say if your if your body gets too hot you you have to stop or if your body gets too hot, is it just a kind of orange light where it tries to slow you down, but it's not an absolute limitation? And so some of those things are like, well, heat is an example, or thirst is another one, or fuel. Like if you hit the wall in a marathon, is that like an absolute, there's nothing you can do, or is it just making it really unpleasant? Mm -hmm. Uh, Pain is another one where it's like, if you're hurting, does that mean, is that because your legs are incapable of moving any farther? Or it's just like, you can keep going, but it's just, you're just going to have to be willing to suffer. And, and like muscle stuff, like, you know, you're talking about the high jump. Like, what about these stories of like, you know, mothers lifting cars off their babies because yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're accessing their full human strength. And so I try to go through these one by one and, and, um, you know, oxygen is another one actually. So like you go for a run, you're panting for oxygen. It, are you really running out of oxygen? Well, if you look at, you know, free divers, who then the world record for breath holding is 11 minutes and 35 seconds. 
and, and, you know, free divers can dive down more than 300 feet on a single breath and come back up and most of the time not die. So, uh, you know, am I really running out of oxygen when I'm just jogging down the street and panting or is that just, again, a a warning sign? And so the the overall picture, when you look at these things one by one, uh, the, the overall picture that emerges is most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time in most cases for most of these limits, we're not hitting, you know, a, a, an actual red light. What we're, what we're getting is a strong orange light that's going to our brain and, and making us feel like we really, really, really want to, to stop or slow down or change our behavior or whatever we're doing. And so th- this is an idea that um, really start, scientists started thinking seriously about in the 1990, late 1990s. Um, because you can think of the 20th century as, as sort of a big in terms of understanding physiology and the human body and, and limits and stuff, there was a ton of progress in the 20th century in understanding the limits of the body, thinking of the body as kind of like a machine. You know, we, we know how you know, cars drive until they're out of gas or until the radiator boils over or whatever. There's various things that will stop a car. We understand that. You can kind of think of humans the same way. Like we have fuel, we need, we need a certain amount of fuel and we have muscles that operate in a certain way and you have to use the heart and the lungs to deliver oxygen. And you can calculate what the the sort of capacities of each of those parts of the body are. And then you can put them all together and say, I can calculate how fast this person can run a marathon. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a pretty good estimate, but it doesn't get you all the way. You can't just put a bunch of people in the lab and know who's going to win the Olympics. Uh, and so in the 90s, there was a guy named Tim Noakes in South Africa, who uh, a researcher who proposed an idea called the central governor, which is the idea that your brain acts as a sort of quote unquote governor, which protects you from going all the way to your limits. Because if you did, you would put your body in danger. You'd, you know, you'd keel over from lack of oxygen or whatever and die. And so his idea or the idea that he is closely associated with is that um, when you feel like you've hit your limits, it's not because your muscles are incapable of moving anymore. It's that your brain thinks your muscles really shouldn't move anymore. Otherwise you'll do yourself damage. And that in the, in the sort of 20 years since then, there's been lots of argument and discussion and debate um, with no sort of firm answers yet. We don't know exactly how the brain holds you back or, or what in, in what form. But the general sense is, yeah, most limits are, are controlled in the brain. And, and in a sense, what the master key is, is your subjective sense of effort, is how hard does it feel? If it feels like you can't go on, then it, you're, you know, it's one of those cliches. If you, if you feel like you can't continue, you're right. And if you feel like you can, you're also right. And that feeling is of effort is generated by all the things going on in your body. It's generated by lactate levels and body temperature and breathing rate, but also generated by how you feel, what your confidence is and you know, what the weather is, how you slept last night. So it, it integrates the body and the mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of that whole feel and thought and, you know, now you're bringing it to a conscious level where you, you're thinking about these things. And I always think, and um, I, I believe you talked about this in the book, but I, I have kids, young kids that I just try and, you know, keep up with as best I can. But when they're moving, like they only know one gear, it's, it's a hundred percent. Like <laughs> when they, when they play with Legos, it's a hundred percent all in invested in whatever, you know, story they're creating in their mind. But when they're out there playing, um, you know, if they're going to run around, it's as hard as they can. And I always look at that, like, you know, they have no, you know, at the age they're at now, at least they don't have that idea of like consequence where like, I might go run some sprints and I'm like, you know what, if I push too hard, I remember this one time I threw up, you know, cause I pushed myself or I have something going on tomorrow. Do I really want to be that sore? And now it might feel really hard, but like, I, I feel I can, that, that where at the conscious level, I start to know, and I think I've gotten better at this where I can see myself 
um, affecting my own performance just with like the thoughts that I have and, and bringing that to my awareness. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's fascinating that you mentioned kids because there's some really, really neat research looking at the developmental stages of kids in terms of pacing themselves. So you, you, you go and have kids run a race that's going to take them a, roughly two minutes to finish. And, and you can, and, and, you, and you look at their pacing pattern and, it, you know, you get an eight year old to run this race and they basically, like you said, they're all out from the gun and yeah. they're just getting, as they, as they sort of fatigue, they're just getting slower and slower until by the end, you know, they're just you know, sort of dribbling along like molasses. And <laughs> if you look at adults, uh, you, you, the pacing pattern tends to be a sort of U-shaped curve where you start off quick and then you settle into a steady pace. And then when you get close to the end, you're like, okay, thank God, now I'm going to finish. And you, and, you, and you unleash this reserve that you've been saving consciously mm-hmm. or unconsciously and you speed up again. And this is true, not just for the sort of local guy at the, at the 5K fun run, but also for, uh, for world record holders. You know, when they set world records, they have this U-shaped pattern, very distinctive, showing that you're holding something back until you know you're almost done. And what they find is that tends to emerge in kids when they're about, I think it's 12 or 13 years old. So they've done these studies with kids of progressively increasing ages. And yeah, there's, there's this moment when they're in, in, in sort of preteen years or early adolescence where uh, they start to connect the cause and effect. And, and, <laughs> and you can tell that it's, it's not that their brains have suddenly changed, it's, it's that they're learning from experience and that what feels like an all-out effort they may feel like they're going as hard as they can for those full two minutes, but on some level, conscious or unconscious, they're, they're holding back because they know that they don't want to run out of energy too soon. And that's, yeah. that's a sort of, that's a behavioral version of this sort of let's protect ourselves from, from disaster. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I, I don't know if you found anything in your research or um, I don't have any thoughts on this. So there's clearly some people that seem to break this, uh, this, um, uh, governor, this limiting factor a little bit better than others where um, they just don't mind that discomfort and they understand that they can push it where I think the majority of us, once we hit a certain level, it's kind of, we're, we're going to settle down and, and, you know, pace ourselves or back off. Any thoughts on why there are those people that just will just punish themselves and they just almost like they just don't care and they're going to be able to push through? Yeah. I mean, it's a complicated question and, and, and definitely nobody knows the final answer. And, and, you know, the, the answers that I tend to give <laughs> in this field always are middling answers, right? Like it's, are they born with it or do they learn to do this? And, yeah. and I think there's a, there's, there's a little bit of both. There's, there's a ton of research that shows if you take trained athletes and compare them to the average person on the street. Um, first of all, their pain, like their, their, their pain sensitivity is the same. So it's not like athletes are either born or learn to not feel pain. They, they feel pain the same as everyone else. So if you do a gradually increasing pain, you know, a prick on the arm or a, or a pressure or anything at the same point, the athlete and the non-athlete will say, uh, Hey, that hurts. Mm-hmm. But then if you keep increasing it, the athlete, you know, the, the, the normal person will pretty soon will say, okay, that's enough. I can't take any more. And the athlete will sit there and keep taking it to a much higher level. So athletes, you can, you can measure in the lab this idea that people who are trained athletes tend to be willing to, 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 to suffer more, to have a higher pain tolerance than non-athletes. Um, now, the question is, are they athletes because they were born that way or by spending years training hard, do they learn to be that way? And like I said, I think there's a bit of both, but mm-hmm. there, there's certainly some evidence that at least part of it is learned that, that, that the process of training is what allows you to push farther and farther into your sort of protective protected region. Uh, and that, you know, even with trained athletes, they find that as the season goes on, 
the closer they get to a goal race, the higher their pain tolerance, not just in sports, but the higher, their, if you, you, pet, you can test their pain tolerance, like by putting a blood pressure cuff around their arm and forcing them mm-hmm. to do, to squeeze their hand with no, you know, it's very painful. Mm-hmm. Um, they're willing to, they're able to do that more when they're really in shape. And then when they take a break after their major championship season, their ability to tolerate that pain goes down. So, so it's, it's not even just something that you learn once and then you've got it. It's something that through ongoing training, one of the things you're, you're doing in addition to, you know, making your muscles stronger and your cardiovascular system more efficient. One of the things you're doing is stealing your mind to be able to handle discomfort. So I think that's, that's an important factor. The one other thing I'll say in terms of the, the sort of nature part, just as a, as an aside is there was a study a couple of years ago with in, in Britain where they looked at a bunch of like absolutely top level athletes like gold medal and world championship uh olympic you know olympic and world championship athletes and compared them to the national team athletes who were really good but weren't making the podium and one of the conclusions they took which is a, a little controversial um but but was interesting is that most of the the gold medal uh you know the medal winners tended to have some sort of childhood trauma um you know trauma in a general term not like they were hit on the head um uh, that, that sort of left them with a chip on their shoulder mm-hmm. uh, and so so there you know it's it, when you see someone who's really willing to just, you know, whack themselves on the head and, and willing to suffer, sometimes they're, they're working out something, you know, something else in their life. And, you know, uh, look, I, 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 am not saying that, like, I don't mean to sound judgmental or anything. Cause I've, yeah, I've certainly yeah. done lots of self-inflicted suffering, but it's, uh, <laughs> so it's complicated. There's some psychology and, and, and there's, there's some physiology there too. Sure. And I think, you know, most people are probably familiar with the movie Rudy uh, and hopefully they have, if they haven't, it's a great movie, but just, you know, kind of that chip on the shoulder, he's too small, he can't do it. And just how he, you know, had something to prove and was able to just get his ass kicked over and over again until he could, you know, make yeah. the football team and all that. And, and it's interesting that, you know, the chip on the shoulder, some people have a reason to have a chip on the shoulder. Some, some people seem to manage to create reasons to have a chip on the shoulder. So they're <laughs> sure. just, they, they find reasons to be angry and to need to prove themselves to everyone. And, and, you know, that can be an effective thing too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I a hundred percent though agree with kind of what you're saying earlier with the, you know, the pain tolerance. And it, it seems like a lot, a lot more people are saying this where it's sure there's the physiology of, of exercise and the change and the adaptation that's going to have from the stress put on the body. Um, but a lot of it is just you. And, and I, you know, there, there's the cliche, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, but there's, um, truth to that where you know even i've seen things with like flexibility where you know are you really gaining more flexibility through like stretching or something like that or some are saying you know initially you're not really lengthening tissue but you're um just being more comfortable being in uh in pain you know as you hold that stretch and you start to see more range of motion that way so you know there's clearly something to it that's that's one of the reasons I don't really stretch anymore. <laughs> I, I looked into the research and I was like, well, yeah. In most cases, you're you're not you're all you're doing is being willing to to tug on your 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 muscle yeah. longer. I mean, stretching is a complicated one, but that, but yes, sure. I, I have seen that research and and uh, it does it does make me sort of uh, smile when I think of all the years I spent stretching twice a day. I was like, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so one one thing I wanted to ask you is just let's say we start to, you know, just be aware of these limitations and, and we are getting better at pushing our limits. I mean, clearly there's a point where this, you know, our brain is doing this for a reason and it potentially could become dangerous. Is this something you think it's even necessary to worry about? We're just probably not going to really be able to push to that limit or is it something you should kind of keep in mind uh, with, with training? 
Yeah, I I think in most contexts, it's not something we need to worry about. Uh, that you know, we're just not capable of of putting ourselves. In, you know, like the safety margin is big enough that learning to eat into a little bit of the safety margin isn't going to be an issue. Like, and one of the examples I think of that is, um, I had a chance to chat with the after the book came out to chat with the a guy who set the American record for breath holding, which is eight minutes and 35 seconds. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is a sort of a simple model for, you know, real versus perceived limits. If you hold your breath for a long time, uh, you'll eventually get to a point where your breathing muscles, like your diaphragm starts to contract involuntarily because your, your body is deciding, um, that you know that that you're an idiot and you, and, you, <laughs> and you need to start breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've never gotten to that point because that, that even to get to that point requires a lot of um, well, desire to suffer, I guess. Um, yeah. But but uh, so th- this guy uh, Brendan Hendrickson, I think his name was, uh, was telling me that for him that the, the these involuntary breathing movements they're called they start somewhere between four and five minutes. So he's holding his breath for for four to five, you know, let's say four and a half minutes. And at that point, his oxygen levels are low, and more importantly, his carbon dioxide levels are high because that's what triggers your desire to breathe. And the body just is, it starts to panic and, and 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 starts to try to force you to breathe. And if you're you know if you're good at this, if you're a trained free diver, you've learned to, you can learn to just deal with these involuntary breathing movements. Your your muscles contract, but you still don't open your mouth, and you don't breathe. And so for him, yeah, it's four and a half minutes for the involuntary breathing movements, and he held the, his record was eight minutes and thirty five seconds. Um, and so. To me, that's like, okay, that's a big margin of safety. You know, your body tries to, to shut you down or your brain tries to shut you down rather at, at four and a half minutes, but you can, you can double that. There's like a, a huge, huge margin of, of, of error. Um, obviously, we can't extrapolate directly from breath holding to, you know, running a marathon or whatever the case may be. But, uh, but I do think we tend to have a pretty, pretty hefty safety margin. Now, there are some exceptions. There are some, some situations where, the brain's sort of uh, self, or, you know, self-analysis is not reliable and, and doesn't do as well. One of the sort of the, the probably the most significant example is prolonged exercise in the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, now we do, we we do have lots of um, uh, sort of signals that try and get us to slow down. Like if you if you go for a run on a hot day, um, what you'll find, and what researchers find, is that you slow down right from the moment you step out the door, you start running and, you, and you're just, you're trying to run as hard as you can, but you, you, you automatically self-regulate compared to a cool day. Like it's, so it's not that you're overheating when you, your, your first two minutes of running, you're actually still quite cool, but you're already going slower because your brain is already conscious of the fact that, oh, okay, it's hotter today. We need to, uh, you know, in anticipation, hold that, hold ourselves back. But that being said, that is a situation where you do sometimes see people and you see these famous issues or images of like, in marathons or Ironman triathlons, you see people close to the finish, uh, or, or sometimes even still a few miles from the finish, starting to stagger and starting to, uh, you, you know, collapse to the ground and, and crawl forward and then moving sideways and stuff. And that's an indication that they've overheated and their brain is overheated. And this, if if something, and this can end up with heat stroke, which can be fatal. And now, usually, when people get heat stroke, there's also some sort of underlying thing going on. There's they've been sick, or they've been taking a, a medication like a, a, a like a um, well. There, there's a few different types of medication that can predispose you to heat stroke. Mm-hmm. Just usually some other factor there, but the fact remains that there's been a breakdown of the body's self protection protective mechanism. So I would say 
heat is a situation where you where you maybe that's a case where you maybe don't want to be thinking about I'm going to be willing to you know push till I die because it could actually happen. Whereas if I just go out to the park right now and say I'm going to run a mile as fast as I can, there, there's basically nothing I almost almost nothing I can do to run myself into into unconsciousness. Like I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Anyway, that's a long and winding answer, but saying mostly you don't need to worry about it, but there's a few situations, particularly prolonged exercise in the heat. Um, and, and, you know, maybe hydro, you know, if you're going, running in the desert, bring a water bottle and stuff like that. But for the yeah. most part, um, common yeah, sense. Kinda, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> perfect. Um, well, I, I, we're running out of time. Um, but one thing I, I know in the book, you go over lots of, um, potential ways that you can maybe, you know, fight some of these limitations that we've talked about, but I just curious, maybe just, uh, some maybe personal takeaways for you, since you are an endurance athlete, uh, that maybe after all this research, did it have any major changes or effects on your, your current training program? The first thing I'll say is, you know, I'm 43 years old and I'm still getting slower every year. So, so there, there was no miracle where I, I, I turned back the, you know, the sands of time. Um, and the, the other sort of, uh, I guess, reality check I would give is that just sort of knowing about this, I, I, I do think being aware of, of this idea that what feels like a limit is not, uh, you know, is, is not a sort of true concrete physical limit. I think it's helpful in terms of, uh, uh, altering my mindset in the middle of a race, you know, if it, when things get tough, I can tell, I, I can remind myself, like, I know this feels hard, but it doesn't mean that your legs are about to fall off. It doesn't mean there's not some sort of thing where it's like, Oh, well, I guess I got too much lactate in my legs. Therefore I can't keep going. It's just like, okay, it's hard now. And I can keep pushing. If I keep pushing as hard as I can, I will maximize my performance. So I think there's just, there's even just the knowledge of it helps. That being said, um, to really, uh, there, there are some ideas that I think are, are, are quite powerful, like motivational self-talk, which is the, the idea you sort of become aware of your internal monologue. And if you notice that you're saying to yourself, you know, this sucks, you're never going to do it. You know, you've screwed this up again. That really <laughs> becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because it affects your perception of effort. Things start to feel harder and you, you, your sense of whether you can succeed gets lower. So you're more likely to slow down and just say, I guess I can't. Whereas if you're telling yourself, I can do this, I've trained for this, keep pushing, then you're more likely to, to, to do that, to keep pushing. So it be, again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So motivational self-talk is one of those things where I think just being aware of it, like I'm convinced that it's a good idea, but I haven't really done the work to make it automatic and natural for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something where, uh, you know, just because I see the mountain doesn't mean I'm on top of the mountain. And I think, so for, for people who want to incorporate this stuff, they need to think this is something I need to, to work at, not just something I need to, to tell myself, uh, you know, at the starting line. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I can relate uh, just yesterday. I had to get a, a little quick workout in and my best option was unfortunately getting on a treadmill. And that is, you know, pretty much just torture to sit oh, yeah. and stare out the window. Uh, and I made it 30 minutes, which I was super happy with. But it's like, you know what? I'm training right now because the whole time I'm telling myself, you could just get off right now. You can just get off right now. <laughs> and I'm just paddling saying, just make this number, just make this number, think about something else, you know, whatever I can do. So it's almost kind of like we we're talking about just uh, how, you know, just training in general builds your pain tolerance. So I think if I get on the treadmill periodically to work on my pain tolerance in a little different way, just shutting my mind down, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mental discipline workout because yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly in, in your camp where it's like, 
I, I can't believe how slowly the seconds tick by on the treadmill. And so maybe that's good, good for me mentally in some way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, Alex, thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, so the new book, or I guess it's not as new anymore, but uh, Indoor, Mind, Body, and the, curio- and, and the Curiosity, Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Uh, I, this is a book that I just love. I can't recommend it enough. I recommend it to all of my, my coaching clients that they pick this up. So uh, anywhere in particular you want them to, to go, I know it's everywhere, Amazon and bookstores, but if you have a preferred yeah, no, I, I, I thank you for the, the kind words. And uh, it, it's, it, I'm happy any, anywhere you, you pick it up. Uh, obviously, I encourage support of, uh, of local bookstores. They do a lot in their local communities, but also there's, there's situations where it's easier to get it from Amazon or Borders or anything like that. And, and that's great too. Um, it's, and, and if anyone wants to sort of keep track with, uh, of what I'm writing these days, probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Sweat Science. And I, I write six articles a month for, for outside magazine so on the latest stuff in the science of training and stuff so if anyone wants to follow those that's where the best place to find me i'm perfect so and i'll put links to the book and uh to your twitter handle and all that in our show notes so they can easily check all that out so again thank you so much for coming on awesome thanks mike it was fun to chat All right, well, that's going to do it for episode 61 of the OCR Underground Show. As always, I hope you got a lot out of this episode. If so, please give us a rating in iTunes and subscribe to the show, however you may be listening, so you don't miss any of the latest episodes. Uh, don't forget, check out the show notes for any links mentioned in the show at ocrunderground.com episode 61. And a big thanks to Alex Hutchinson and giving us some of his insights into endurance, performance, and all of the amazing research and, and writing that he has been doing. So if you need extra help with your training, please check out some of our resources. Remember our free two-week OCR training program. And if you like what you see there and want to learn more, definitely hit me up and we can talk more about some coaching options to help you rock your next race. Uh, That's it for now. Keep training smarter and I will see you next time.